All right, it's a post game and a weekly edition of uh, the latest episode of Bourbon Biscuits and Barn Burners. Chris Kerber, Tim Woodburn, John Hadley with you. We also call him Squirrely Dan. Glad to have you with us. And guys, boy, we got a lot to go through. Blues finish a four-game win streak. They lose last night. It brings the angst of the second games back together. There's line combinations. There's power play. There's jerseys. There's a lot at stake and a lot on the table for the St. Louis Blues who are dealing with some COVID adjustments on top of their schedule on that around the National Hockey League. Some great topics from the Montreal Canadiens to Connor McDavid, the, the New York Rangers going through some struggles. The Boston Bruins are just kicking butt again, and they've got a big outdoor game. Uh, you know, Well, a game coming up in Lake Tahoe, I guess, is the way to, do, to look at it. And then the way things are starting to shape out, uh, even the Nashville Predators, I mean, could we... Could this be the beginning of the end for David Poyle in Nashville? So a lot of, lot of different stuff to get through. And how are you? How are you guys doing? You ready to go this week? Yeah, I'm ready to go. My my vision's still a little blurry from seeing all those red jerseys blast around the ice last night. I'm having eye surgery next Tuesday, so I'm hoping that can correct any additional damage that I already had done in watching that last night. <laughs> you know, the, problem, the problem with the red jerseys, John. John, the problem with the red jerseys is that they not only did the Blues look like the St. Louis uh, Red Blues, they played like the Detroit Red Wings in them. Oh, oh, yeah! It's hard to it's hard to deny that that was not a great game. I, I, I I'm telling you, boys, I I never got the red jerseys, but there there are people who swear that those are the Blues' best jerseys. Oh I don't God. get it, but I know this much, Curbs. There's a lot of younger guys who like those red jerseys. Make no mistake about this. Make no mistake about this. It is a generational gap thing. Those jerseys are a generational gap thing. They made them, and they sold out almost immediately. Could not meet the demand for them. That's how popular those things were. To the, I mean, and and so if you were one of the early ones to get one of those jerseys, fantastic and bully for you because uh, they sold out fast. And I'm going to tell you something, and you guys may have heard me say this at some point in time. Go back to when T.J. Oshie was with the St. Louis Blues, and he saw some pictures of uh, those jerseys, that style, both the home and road. Now, of course, the one we saw last night, it's the retro one, okay, so it, the, the, there was a lot more red than, than you're used to. But T.J. Oshie said those things are sick. He loved them right from the start. And you you, go, you sit up in that broadcast booth and Joe Vitale's going, man, I love those jerseys. My kids, dad, those jerseys are awesome. And now me personally, I look at it and go, ah, I just, I'm never comfortable with the red in the Blues logo that much. Okay, but from a youth standpoint, my God, they love them. Yeah, all right. My sentiments are... Much closer aligned with Tim's than the uh, than the millennials, but I also sort of accept it because fact is when you have a well when when you can go cha ching cha ching and and have finger cramps because you're ringing the register, I get it. I completely get I, it. I learned the game of hockey growing up, born in 69, I, I started following the Blues in, in the late 70s, and I was a big 80s guy and 90s guy. I actually received a phone call, and I forget his name, from the vice president of public relations for the National Hockey League, who was sitting next to Gary Bettman on a plane uh, uh, on, the, on the runway in Los Angeles, because the one letter I ever wrote to Gary Bettman in my life was years after I'd gotten out of broadcasting hockey to complain about how the National Hockey League screwed up and unlike the NBA and Major League Baseball, went to the home team wearing the colored jersey so that the visiting team wore their white jersey. And I, I told them, you were totally missing the point. You're not showcasing the beautiful colors of your game and the jerseys. You know, it, it, growing up wa- watching the Blues wear white jerseys and the evil Red Wings red and the evil Blackhawks red and the evil LA Kings black. You know, it was, it was fun to see all those colors. And now it's, hey, we get Edmonton's white. Now next week we get Calgary's white and then San Jose's white. And then we get Minnesota's white. It's ridiculous. The NBA has it right. Major League Baseball has it right. The NHL has it wrong, and they still have it wrong. Tim, that I'm not okay. When I tell you this, like, like I would say that there's the two questions, the two questions I get the most from fans, 
And I'm I'm pretty sure that this it, these are these are one and two, and then everything else is seventh and eighth. Okay. The two questions I get the most. One, do you travel with the team to do the games? Now this is pre-COVID. Okay, so now obviously we're doing it remotely. But pre I'm I'm telling you, pre-COVID, uh the number of people that 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 wonder whether or not we are actually doing the games on site blows blew my mind still to this day to us. I I don't I mean I don't get any question more than I get that one question. The second one, without a doubt, relates to exactly what you just said about the home teams wearing the darks and just begging and asking why the league does this. We've brought it up. I've asked the question, and they said their marketing research says the home fans want it this way. And I'm going, man, I don't know, because my own little litmus test and focus groups, which is just about every fan that asks that question to me, seems to feel differently. You are not alone in your thoughts about whether or not we should be wearing whites or darks at home. See, in the old days, in the 60s, it was like that, where the home team, you know, the Montreal Canadiens wore the, the blue Blanca rouge, you know, at home, and the and the other teams wore white. But back then, there was a lot more fighting in the game, and Phil Esposito actually petitioned the, the National Hockey League to change it because teams that traveled on four- and five- and six-game road trips were getting blood soaked into their white jerseys, and it showed up a lot worse in the white than it would on the dark. So the NHL, that's the reason why they switched it, is because of that. And then, it, so then the home team started wearing white for all of the 70s and, and all of the 80s and, and most of the 90s, I think. And then the stupid Detroit Red Wings owner, uh, Illich, uh, petitioned the NHL to change it because he told his team's fans, and the Red Wings fans wanted to see their team wear red, so the NHL said, well, if it's good enough for Detroit, it's good enough for the whole damn league. And I say hogwash. Listen, they didn't make you eat Little Caesars pizza 24-7, so you, we'll be okay. Oh. Listen, well, uh, Tim, I, I love you your, dude. I, I love your passion on this topic, man. You, this is one. This is one that you have been on for years and years, oh. and it is just as passionate front of mind for you now as it was in day one. And my friends tell me to just quit talking about it because it, it got to the point where I was talking about it every game, and so I, my, my own friends had to had to muscle me on the on the subject. <laughs> I'm glad I can vent to you too. Well, I can tell you this much right now: any way you cut it. When it comes to wearing white in the winter, it's a fashion faux pas. And it's just, John Wayne, I don't know why John sports Wayne. can get away with it. John Wayne movies, Hadley. John Wayne movies. Good guys, white hats. Bad guys, dark hats. White hats, dark hats. <laughs> hey, golf thing. You could have gone John Wayne. You could have gone Lone I'm, Ranger. Oh, I know. It. I'm telling you, the, the, the VP of the NFL called me. From the runway with Gary Bettman sitting next to him saying, I want to thank you for your passion. It's a big response to this. Commissioner Bettman sitting here nodding his head and, and read your letter and, and laughed. And we just wanted to say thank you for your passion uh, about the National Hockey Call me. I'll sit at my desk in the middle of the day. And he, and he called me to say that. <laughs> what did he make you think when he said, I'm sitting next to Commissioner Bettman and he laughed? Yeah. I thought I, I thought it was a prank call at first. It was one of those deals. It's like the day when Robert Hyland called me, the day I graduated college at Mizzou. And he said, Tim, this is Robert Hyland. I'm like, sure it is. Who is who, who, who the F really is this? And it was really him because a family member of mine knew him. And I was, you know, hung over in bed on a Saturday. Yeah, big smoothie strikes again on that one, too. <laughs> well, let's take it from what they wore to what they did on the ice and the St. Louis Blues. Yeah. You know what? It was a four-game win streak. And to show you, listen, folks, as this is the reality of playing 56 games inside your division. You win four games in a row to get your record to 7-3-1, and one, and that just has you tied with the Colorado Avalanche. Three points ahead of Minnesota. Now, Vegas is going to get going tonight as we record this on, on Friday, February 5th. Vegas is going to get going again tonight. They're, they're going to rack up some points and do some leapfrogging here. They'll, they'll play that old 80s game of Frogger uh, as they get rolling again here. But that said, it's a little disappointing not that the win streak ended. It's not that the win streak ended. And and I heard Bruce Boudreau do an interview about this uh, yesterday or the day before. You're you're frustrated as a coach with a loss, but sometimes you know that when you lose, you've played a good game, and sometimes a loss just happens. It's when you lose and the effort wasn't there that bothers you. And once again, for the first part of that first period, the first half, maybe even the first half of the game, inexplicably, it was just a bad game for the Blues again. And I, I promise you this, guys, 
this isn't coaching. This isn't a uh, uh, you know a coaching staff where you're going ah they weren't prepared. We talked to Craig Berube every single game day prior to the game. We ask him what his matchups want to be. We ask him about what he thinks he's going to see. We ask him what he thinks we're going to get from the other team. What we saw from the Coyotes last night, what we saw from Colorado in game two of that matchup, right? Every single time we ask that question, he tells us what he thinks we're going to see, and that is 100% what the other team has brought. And you know if he's telling that to broadcasters, you know his players are being telling that. This is a group of players that has to find a way to be ready to go for the, that that second matchup, and especially now that it's going to become a third and fourth matchup against the Coyotes. Well, I, I know this much, Curbs. I also think that early in the season, um, the standings can be very fooling. And I mentioned this on the radio yesterday in previewing the contest. Is it a I, I have seen all but two Coyote games this year. And literally, with the exception of one game in Las Vegas, the Coyotes were in every game right down to the wire. Yep. Win, lose, or draw. Every one of their I, – I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I want to say yesterday they were going in with seven of a potential 18 points, and yet they were only minus three in goal differential. And it wasn't because they had blown a couple teams out. It was because win, lose, or draw, it's one or two goal games. You know, with uh, with this hockey team, they picked up their goalie. They picked up another uh, another young defenseman. They had another guy coming off an injury. Hey, I, I don't think the Coyotes are a playoff team, but I think that the Coyotes are a competitive, hardcore team especially with some of the guys in their top six forwards who, when they want to play, they can be uh, pesky and nasty. Not the greatest top two lines, but they have some guys on there that can play. That big old boy in the middle on the front, uh, on on the top line, he can play. You know, so, again. Both games bookended each other, John, in that, you know, the the Blues got off to a horrible shot start in both games. Even the Tuesday win, they were behind in shots at one point, eleven to one, and then they all then all of a sudden they rattle off fourteen consecutive shots and hold them shotless for almost almost uh, almost fifteen entire minutes, and then they get bombed again uh, with Thursday night in in shots early, down eleven to one. They don't score a goal until their thirty something shot of the game. This this is not a heavy team, you know, like like the team that won the cup. I mean that that team had big bangers, Tarasenko and and, and Bowmeister, Maroon, Steen, Edmondson, all those guys that. We're on that team. Those guys are all here. This is a different team that's going to win a different way. And and clearly through 11 games, one of the things that they're not doing is pounding teams in the offensive zone and wearing them down and cycling them out. This team scoring goals off the rush and and, and on quick trigger plays. And it's just, it's just nowhere near the same type of team that won the cup. It'll be fascinating to me to see how long they can extend seven, three, and one trends if they can continue to extend them over a 56-game season considering you know that the power play is, is hapless. And, and that they're not executing offensive zone puck control for extended periods of time, really, at all uh, in the last uh, two games. So we'll get into the power play here. We'll get into the power play in just a moment. But to, to your point, Tim, I kind of look at this season, and, and let's just assume that they're going to be able to play 56 games, but I look at breaking it up into seven, eight-game segments. And the reason is, is you're playing each of these teams eight times. So the Blues in the first eight games go 5-2-1. and one. Then they start the second set by winning the first two, and they're now 2-1 and one with three games into the next set of eight games. The, re- the reason I bring that up is essentially the way I look at that first set of starting at 5-2-1 and one is that that's the same thing as going 5-2-1 and one against any one of your opponents in your division. All right, You can call it semantics, call it whatever you want. If you put that kind of pace on, you are going to make the playoffs. You're going to be playing 650 to 700 hockey and you're going to make the playoffs even in this in this West Division doing that. But where Tim where I think you just nailed it is you're used to the identity of that heavier grinded team. And there are some key guys whether it be a Sanford, whether it be a Blay, 
that you're not getting that kind of consistent play out of just yet. And they're key guys now, because you've had lineup changes, you need to make that happen. You don't have Tarasenko in there. You don't have some of those other puck guys. So the, the reality of it is, is even though last night in the second game against the Coyotes, the Blues finished with 23 hits, and ironically, it might have even been 24 hits, but ironically, the three players, the only three players on the roster that did not have a hit were Thomas, that doesn't surprise you, but Sunquist and Shen, that does surprise you. And and those two guys, those two guys have been bringing it shift in, shift out every single game. So nothing to heap on those two guys about. But even though everybody else on the team re- registered one hit somewhere in that game, it didn't feel like that heavy style we're used to seeing. Well, you didn't see you know, the one thing I can guarantee you is that when the Blues lose to, with all due respect to the Coyotes, when the Blues lose to a lesser team, take a look at which team's third and fourth lines won the battles. Because the Blues' third and fourth lines just did not, just did not play well as units in that contest, which sort of, uh, in a sense, plays in to what the two of you were just saying, is that because ultimately that's really where a lot of the wear and tear is going to come from is when the third and fourth lines are on their game. So it was, just, it was, it was one of those games last night that, you know, there's, there's a big difference between someone coming out and, and, and ultimately dominating 15 minutes of play between uh, uh, the first period and into the second period, maybe 20 minutes of play. And, and, you know, having a, a tie game going in to the last 30 minutes and not sure, or last 20 minutes and not showing. They were, this was just one of those games where, you know, Arizona was due. They got the breaks. They took advantage of them. You know, I, I, I take these games because I, it's, it's not as though I, I did not see a lack of effort. It was just the Blues were outplayed last night. Arizona. That that might have been the best uh, the best uh, forty minutes of hockey that Arizona's played all year between the first two periods of that contest. Yeah, but Seriously. the problem is well, is the St. Louis Blues. You look at that game and you lost the game because you lost the net front battle on all three of their goals. Now one was a rush coming down by Pitlick. The other two were they were stronger on the puck after brilliant saves by Jordan Bennington on the next two goals. And that, that I think, is where a coaching staff gets a little frustrated. But, but Tim, and I, I don't know where you're at on this one, and, and I realize that what I'm about to say may seem a little unfair because the goaltender was pulled. All right? And I get that. Sometimes it's puck bounces. Sometimes it's bad luck. And, you know, the, you're, the odds are they're going to score more than you will in most cases, although it didn't happen last night, because your goaltender is pulled. But after the Blues got on the board with that first goal with the goaltender pulled, and they had to just because of fatigue and ice time, shift to that second group that became the second group of six players after winning the faceoff. That group couldn't get a handle of the puck. That group lost. They lost the key 50-50 battles. And you sensed the pressure that a younger group had versus the calm of the, the veteran nature of that first group that scores the three goals. But that, to me, was probably a – that was as disappointing a shift as the others. And it's not because, hey, they won – you know, Arizona won a puck battle. They cleared it out. It went 200 feet and went in. It's it's just that that is the that is the next group of guys that has to have that puck grit, that has to have that ability to outwin the other team. And a couple of them, like Sunquist, are ones that typically do it on a regular basis. Barbashev's had a tough start to this season, without a doubt. But as a unit, as a group of younger players, that's the group that has to pick up the slack in that department because you can't rely on those veteran guys all the time to do it. That's where the gap is, and I thought that that shift seemed to demonstrate that. Where, where to, em, to emphasize what you just said, the group of younger players stepping up, you know, Zach Sanford is John Hadley's whooping boy. I, I, would, I would suggest that I don't understand how Robert Thomas can be quarterbacking from the left wall, the second power play unit with Kyrou, and, and playing 14 minutes of ice time per game, 
And through 11 games, the man has taken four shots on goal. You know, I, I don't understand that productivity. I don't understand how the Blues could be one for 21 on the power play at home and still keep the same units rolling and rolling and rolling out there. Something has to give. Something has to change. Well, I think you guys are missing the key here because it'd be one of the most glorious events in hockey history. And I am not, I am not approving violence, but I think sometimes you gotta, you gotta pick up your own team. And I'm just thinking by the time that these two teams play the four straight game, and if there's need for momentum or energy, I want to see Baruby go after talk because this will be the greatest fight between coaches in sports history. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean it, it, it'll have a little more pop than Boudreaux versus Wah? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen coaches fight. I've seen coaches fight before. It's, it's not pretty. It's like watching goalies fight. Well, yeah, but you've never had guys like Ruby and and Tockett as your coaches. That's the whole well, key. No doubt. No hey, doubt. But I but will. He's, he's he's engaged now. He probably have to. He probably have to get it approved from the misses first before he did that. Hey, but well, I, I, I'll give you. I, to that to that to that end, I'll give you tonight's. I'll, I'll give you a barn burner story. I'll give you. I'll give you this week's barn burner story early. All right. Okay. Birmingham Bulls go up to play the Dayton Bombers, in the East Coast Hockey League, and I get to the game. It's actually the first time I met uh, Bobby Plager too. I get to the game and I go upstairs in the morning skate to set up my gear and look what it is. And I see my name on a chair. And as you know, you did the games on your own. You set up your own equipment. I look to the right and there was a nameplate on the back of the chair that said B. Plager. And I went, whoa. Called my dad. I go, I think, uh, I, think I might have Bobby Plager sitting next to me during the, uh, during, during the game. And he goes, wow, that'd be pretty cool. All right, so sure enough, Bobby sits down. I introduced myself to him. He was great. And I said, do you mind if I do an interview with you during the first intermission? He says, no, I'd be happy to. So I set up a second headset. All right, so Phil Roberto, former Blue, and Bobby's former teammate is our head coach. Jerome, stay out of my yard, Bouchard, uh, who is back as an assistant coach actually right now with with Birmingham and in, in, in the league they're currently in. But uh, Jerome was kind of our captain and our uh, actually, that year he wasn't our captain, but uh, he was he was our tough guy at the time, and uh, uh, and and again the the nickname speaks for itself. Jerome, stay out of my yard, Bouchard. So a fight breaks out, and an all heck breaks out during the second period. But prior to the second period, I put Bobby Plager on the air with me, and we're and and even back then. So this is the ninety four ninety five hockey season. So the same debate about fighting in hockey that people are having today was going on 20, 25 years ago. All right. I mean, it's still, it's still a debate that was going on. So that was, it was a hot topic then. And Bobby was, was during this interview talking about the role that fighting in hockey played and why and boom, boom, boom. So the second period comes along and all hell breaks out. It's a line brawl. Everybody's going. The goaltenders are going. The coaches are barking at each other. I mean, it just, and it went on and on. And I'm, I mean, I'm trying to call it like the guy in slap shot, and I'm I'm just probably butchering the holy heck out of this thing, you know. I mean, I you needed some some you know Vince McMahon uh, ability for that, and I hadn't didn't have it yet. I'll tell you that. So I'm trying to say this guy's in a fight, that guy's in a fight. No, this fight's here. The Jerome Jerome Bouchard's going after this guy. Phil Roberto's going after this guy. The refs now mad at the coaches. I mean, it's all over the place. Bobby Plager just picks up the headsets, puts it on in the middle of me calling all this, and goes, see, Chris, that's exactly what you and I were just talking about. And he did color for the rest of the fights, right? He ends up, <laughs> oh, he just, nice. oh, yeah, he just chime, chimes in and does color for the rest of the fights. In the Listen, end. Chris, I got I, I got to sidekick this. So I, I was the voice of the Birmingham Bulls for their expansion season, and Phil Roberto was a front office member. But they went up to Nashville to play an exhibition game, their first ever game in franchise history. and. Bruce Garber, the coach, wanted to watch the game from the stand, so he sent Phil Roberto down to sit behind, stand behind the bench. Of course, Phil Roberto is one of the Blues who went up into the stands in Philadelphia and got arrested right. at the Spectrum, you know, years ago as Bobby Flager's teammate. So Phil's down there, and he was a tough guy. And Nick Fatiu, one of the all-time tough guys in the NHL, was the coach in Nashville. And Jerome Stay out of my yard, Bouchard's teammate, Rob, is there a doctor in the house? Kraus gets into a fight right in front of the Nashville bench, and Fatiu starts barking at him, and Roberto starts barking at Fatiu. Fatio picked up the plane of plexiglass between the two benches, lifted it off its moorings, raised it over his head, and tried to smash it on Roberto's head and missed him, and it hit behind the bench on the ground and snapped. 
These are true they stories. Are, if, if, if Craig Ruby wants to fight Rick, while we're, while we're using nicknames here, if Craig Ruby wants to fight Rick Eight Ball Corner Tockett, maybe he wants to pick a little different coach to fight because Rick Tockett was pretty tough in his day. Yeah, oh, but I'm no okay. Question. I'm still taking Baruby in that fight. I'm still taking Baruby too. Oh, okay. I'm, well, you know, but I'm saying, you know, maybe he, maybe he, you know, want to fight, you know, a, a, you know, a different, a lesser coach. That's not quite. As I watched. As, uh, like well, Jared Bedner, maybe. Listen, real, real quickly here. That game, that game in Dayton ended up finishing where they kicked out both head coaches, just about everybody that was on the ice. We finished wow. the game where the player, and and because of salary cap down there. Players, uh, one player was designated as a player assistant coach, and in this case it was Jerome. So we finished with the player assistant coaches coaching the game, uh, five guys on the ice, and each team had two subs on the bench is how the rest of the game was finished. <laughs> it was it yeah. was, um, it was was unbelievable, but I love Bobby Plager putting it on there. Listen, you brought, you know, Craig Berube yesterday, and I mentioned this to Joe during a game, he pulls his mask down, pops a piece of gum in there, and I'm sitting there going, holy cow, you got to feel sorry for that piece of gum. Like, like I mean, Ruby's intensity on the bench is just fantastic, and and he's got a great feel on the bench. But holy cow, I know, I'm th- I'm telling you right now, give me any coach going in the National Hockey League, and um, taking Chief, and frankly, with Chief and Steve Ott, I'll take this coaching staff against anybody's. Oh, there's no doubt. There is no doubt. But there there is one topic, boys, that I want to backtrack on. I sidetracked this with with my uh, coaches fighting thing, but I do want to follow up because I thought Tim brought up an interesting topic and that being Robert Thomas. See, I, 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 I don't think that Sanford is a factor with this team. I really don't. I've made that clear. I don't think Sanford's presence is going to be the difference between winning or losing a playoff series, advancing, winning a division. Problem is Robert Thomas is. And we came into the season saying, is this the year? And Craig Berube himself, I distinctly recall Curbs telling me, hey, listen to what he says. And I, I read the article the next day, and Berube saying, there's, there's no guarantee that Robert Thomas is going to be among our top six forwards, this, that, and the other thing. But everybody knows he has to be, or at least play at that level. I'll take it one step further. His numbers don't look good right out of the box. I will tell you this much, Curbs. Uh, and I want your opinion on this and on the next one on Stanford. But I, I frankly, from what I have seen, and you're there live more often than that, that might have been the worst game I've ever seen Robert Thomas play in a blue game. So the fact that he hasn't really stepped up early in the season, but to play what I thought might have been his worst game ever, is a, is a little concerning. Okay, so... I I agree with you. It is. But, but I'm temp I'm tempered with this thought. And and this is not making excuses. This is just injecting some reality into this, okay? You have a player that is in just his third season in the National Hockey League. Now, okay, look, you're still a veteran at this point, okay? But you're in your third season in the National Hockey League. It's your first year kind of living off on your own in that sense. All right. So remember, he'd been living with the Kachucks for the last couple of years, which has helped with the adjustment to the to the pro lifestyle coming in as a 19-year-old kid. You're in a contract year. So, and when you talk to players, players will tell you, yeah, you know what, it, you, you sit there and you could say it doesn't weigh on you. You could say it doesn't matter, but you know you're going in saying, man, if I rack up some points this year, that, that that's going to help immensely. You put that on there, then they're talking about you having to move and being in a top six role. But the reality of it is to be in that top six role, you've got to beat out Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shen. And Braden Shen has been better for the Blues at center than he has at wing. He's been a centerman his whole life. He can play without without thinking. He plays instinctual hockey when he's at center right now. And that's very clear from the way the first two games went when he was on the wing versus when he was put back at center in the third game. So because of that, and you put all that on here as, as a 21-year-old kid and you're trying to get this all figured out, I frankly just, I honest to goodness think that he's just putting way too much on himself game in, game out, and that's weighing him down versus just playing hockey. And Jimmy Montgomery in practice, the morning skate prior to the game yesterday, he spent about 15 minutes after the game, real tight to the net too, just firing pucks into the net, just working on some, just some of those type of things that, 
just say, hey, keep it simple, fire it to the net, that kind of thing. So Tim Woodburn's assessment, it is it is kind of frightening to think that you had gone six games and he only had shots on goal in two of them, and it was only one shot on goal in each of those two games, right? That can't happen. His play has become very predictable, not as creative, and, and I just have to think, because I, I, I know he cares and I know the work ethic is there. I've seen it. I've seen it every day in practice. I see it in the games, right? I just have to think that for a young player with all that other stuff going on, he's putting way too much on himself. And the coaching challenge now is to get him to take some of that weight off his shoulders and just play instinctual hockey. He, you know, and it's all about who he plays with. I, I, you know, I understand chemistry and I understand line dynamics, but he doesn't play with Jordan Cairo five on five, but he plays with Jordan Cairo on the second power play unit. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. He, he, I don't get the whole power play in general. You know, I mean, James Schwartz has one power play point all year, you know, and, and he's on the, the go-to first line. This team cannot sustain 7-3-1 and one winning percentage when they are scoring four power play goals every 11 games. Plain and simple. No, Plain and, he, simple. and then they had 12 power play shots last night. You've gone 0-9 on the power play against the Coyotes over the last two games, and the Coyotes' penalty killing is good, right? But – this is a power play where you've got the adjustment of Krug, you know, being being a left-handed shot up there. Uh, how they how they put the puck, where they put. But I'm watching those power plays last night, John. And to, to Tim's point, and and this was a this was a top five power play last season. Okay, and it was a top five power play that really didn't have one timer options too much, unless it was David Perron taking it right all last season, and they were still one of the best. But for some reason. And, and I have to hope. I got my fingers crossed. You have to hope that what happened with the goalie pulled and scoring three goals and that shooting mentality, because that is essentially a power play, right? You're set up, you're firing shots. You have to hope that maybe that is part of the breakthrough that comes for this power play unit. But, Tim, where, I, where I'm in complete agreement with you is, is on this. If you... You aren't going to score a regular basis on the power play if you don't one-time the puck. The penalty killers are too good. The sticks are too good, and the goaltenders are too good. You have got, and it's not just guys have to shoot it with a one-timer. You've got to put some passes in a spot, and guys have to be in a position where the one-timer can be effective. I, I, just, I believe that wholeheartedly. You've got to, There's got to be some one-timer options. And even if the first power play unit is a little more skill, pass, deflected in, and, and create some pretty ones... The second one has just got to be a dead on shoot it mentality. The old, the you know, the old Al McKinnis approach, or he's a rookie, and the coach looks at everybody else with the Calgary Flames and said the power play is going through him. You pass it to him, he shoots it, and then you look for a rebound if it doesn't go in. And if you don't want to do it this way, you're not playing on the power play. One of those two units has got to have that approach. You know, Colton Pareko. All seven of his points this year are at even strength. The Blues are a great team at even strength. Uh, they're one of the best teams, if not the best team in the league, goal differential-wise, at even strength. Shoring this up will make this, will continue to make this an elite team. Not shoring it up won't. Well, it's, it's that plain and simple. There's guys with bombs. They've gone, you know, they've gone to four forwards and one D on both of their first two power play units, and it's just not working. Start bombing away from the point. Put two D out there. Start bombing. Do something. Well, do something. today, to, today in practice, they changed up that. So, so after what the components of that first unit did, six on five, I'm perfectly fine keeping that moving forward for another game, and let's see if something started to click. Intriguingly enough, and albeit there were a guy or two that, that were not on the ice, maybe for a maintenance day with all the hockey going on, but Justin Falk. Who's been one of the uh, one of the best goal scoring defensemen on the power play since he came into the league, right? But Justin Falk and Oscar Sundquist were put onto that second power play unit. Falk was bombing one timers, and Sundquist was uh, had a net front presence. I, I think that's going to make a difference. I like that change. And, and here's the other thing, John. I'll I'll throw this at you. There are games, and and Tim's right. I mean, five on five goal scoring has been superb for the St. Louis Blues. Even strength goal scoring and goal differential, best in, in the National Hockey League, right? But so far, the power play hasn't won you a game. Last night was a great example where a power play can win you a game. It's one of those games where when when 
Arizona comes out like they did. They get the two-goal lead. When you get your pushback, they start to take penalties. That's what a younger team does, and they did it. And if you capitalize on two of those, it's a totally different game going into the third period. And uh, and and they did it. That was that to me. That was a game last night where the power play let that team down. Yeah, yeah, and you know we've seen it with uh, with both units and, and and various stretches of games where. You know, the penalty kill was atrocious, now the power play. I mean, ultimately, again, I'm a patient guy. I understand the game. What I do know is that if this is not rectified, Tim is right. This this will haunt this team in the playoffs. Your special teams oftentimes can be the difference in a series. And right now, I don't know about you boys, but I don't have a, a lot of confidence in a big series. In either one of these special team units. Well, I would I would worry more uh, honestly when it comes to the playoffs. I'd worry more about a penalty kill than I would about a power play. If nothing else, the power play is going to help you take two minutes off the clock. But if you don't have a good penalty kill, that can impact how you play aggressively and all that. That that can be disastrous. I, I'll leave it with this because I want to get into a, a couple of topics around the National Hockey League. All right, well, real, real quick before you do that, I'm just curious your take. And a guy yesterday told me flat out when it came to my weekly topic, exact sample. He said, well, I'm not going to disagree with your assessment. You have the right to your assessment. I understand what you're saying. He said, but I can tell you this much right now. The top players on this team are very tight and close with the coach of this team. So if the top players on this team didn't want Stanford playing with them, he wouldn't be playing with them. So those players must see something in him. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, I would agree with that assessment, but only to a certain point because I also believe that if and when Craig Berube has a different or better option on any line than the one he has right now, he'll listen to the players he might give them a little room and say, okay, I'm going to give you a chance to figure it out. But then he's also not going to hesitate, hesitate to say, no, I don't think so. Look, I mean, okay. I mean and, and so if, if you really, to take that one step further as an example, you're obviously not going to mess with the Schwartz-Shen-Kairou uh, line right now. All right? Your only other real option at the beginning here was do you put Sammy Blay on the left side with O'Reilly and David Perron? Okay, well... You know, for, for the most part, you're like, okay, they're playing well against the other team's top lines for the most part. Game-to-game consistency isn't there, but you, you kind of feel Perron and O'Reilly coming on. I think O'Reilly's got a seven-game point streak going right now, right? And, and David Perron, prior to, to the start of this Arizona series, now Perron had a couple points last night. Uh, Perron had a six-game point streak. So something's clicking, and they're doing it not not just on the power play like we just talked about, right? So it's something's working, even if Sanford isn't picking up some points there. Um. Having said that, now with what we saw six on five last night, and I know Sanford wasn't on the ice today for practice, but do you see Mike Kaufman go to the left side with Perron and O'Reilly? And so, bada bing, bada boom. It, it's and and now here's the thing. Now that's a hell of a challenge for Mike Kaufman right now because that means Mike Kaufman is going to have to play defensive hockey like he's never played defensive hockey in his career. Because if you're on a Ryan O'Reilly line, you're getting those assignments. And, uh, but I think Mike Hoffman has got more speed than Zach Sanford. And that's what I like about this potential thing. I think if there's anything that that line has been missing right now, it's been, it's been an extra burst of speed to be able to get in on the four check and help win some of those puck battles. So I hear what you're saying. And yes, I, I think this coach listens to its players. I just don't know if they have some other options yet to try there, and and other than the one that they may try tomorrow if they keep that line that they practice today with with Hoffman on the left. I would love to see that. I would absolutely love to well, see that because it also puts the onus on the player. Hey, you chose to came, you chose to come here. You talked about winning. You talked about this. You talked about that. All right. Well, virtually every other player on this roster has bought into a concept that save a few games in a bubble has proven to be incredibly successful. So you want to be here? Prove it. 
Well, and I'll, and I'll, I'll peel it back to, to, to Tim's topic and Robert Thomas. And again, I, I say this as we record this podcast that, you know, and there wasn't a lot of extra media availability today. So we don't know for sure what the story is with Blay and Sanford not being out there and maybe needing a maintenance day, uh, being given the option on, on the ice today and then exercising that option or not. One of the lines that got run today was Robert Thomas in the middle with Barbashev on the left and Sundquist on the right. And here's what I like about this potential matchup. It's going to force, and, and I know it sounds bad to say it this way, but it forces Robert Thomas to work, right? So if he's doubting yeah. anything, if he's doubting anything in himself, he's got to get through that in a hurry because you know when you are going to be on the ice with Sundquist and Barbashev, you're going to be in the battle on every single play, and it's going to look bad if you're not right there with Sundquist digging pucks out of corners. So, guys, I, I like I like the change and the responsibility that maybe these line changes, if they are what they use in games three and games four, head to head with Carolina or with Arizona over the weekend. Tim, I like what it kind of forces the responsibility and accountability of the player into doing. Well, I like it just for the sense of I think Robert Thomas is an extremely talented player. And it's just giving him a new breath of fresh air with a couple other bodies to see if he can get something clicking. I mean, it's like I said earlier in this, in this podcast, change something just for the sake of change for a talented guy who, who needs to pick me up. And I'm, I'm ecstatic to hear the fact that Ruby's putting him with somebody that he really hasn't played with much with, if at all, in his entire career. Change for the sake of change. I like it. I do. All right, let me let, let me throw some topics around the National Hockey League. We, last week when we recorded this episode of uh, of Bourbon Biscuits and, and Barn Burners, again with Tim Woodburn and John Hadley, I'm Chris Kerber. The Didn't get a chance to get into this. Last week you had a game where the Edmonton Oilers went off. Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid were unbelievable. McDavid had five points, Dreisaitl had six. And the Oilers win the game eight to five. They win the game... 8-5, to five. and these guys had a combined 11 points. Through 11 games at that point in time in the season, through 11 games, they had 22 points each. I mean, the totals are just sick. The totals are sick that they're pointing up. But then again, take a look at where the Edmonton Oilers are. At that point in time, they weren't even in a playoff spot. Here it is a week later. They're finally in one. They're at 500 after 12 games into the season, so just under a quarter way through the the 56-game season, right? They're playing 500 hockey. It's a team with a minus goal differential of minus one. And if you guys want, if you want a playoff indicator, overall goal differential, check it out. Go back over the last 20 years, and while you'll see one, maybe two teams year in, year out that make the playoffs with a minus goal differential, it's never more than that. It is is as true a playoff indicator indicator as any basic statistic out there to be honest with you you don't have to get too deep into it so I started thinking of Connor McDavid here who's drafted first overall in 2015 by the Edmonton Oilers and I thought yeah here's another interesting nugget so I went back all the way back to 1980 when the Montreal Canadiens chose Doug Wickenheiser first overall right if you look at the first overall picks in the draft 40 years later, only eight of them, only eight, only Mario Lemieux, Mike Madonna, Vinny LeCavalier, Marc-Andre Fleury, Alex Ovechkin, Sidney Crosby, Patrick Kane, and Steven Stamkos. Those are the only eight first overall picks that won a Stanley Cup with the team that drafted them first overall. And the reason I bring this up is as exciting and amazing players as the Edmonton Oilers have in Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. And you have to think, because they have two of them, much kind of like a, a Malkin and a Crosby, right, or a Kane and a Taves, you, you, you have to think that they are eventually going to win a Stanley Cup here with the Edmonton Oilers. But until your top players try to figure out how to play some level of defensive-type hockey and mix it in there, it ain't going to happen. And while they're still very young players overall, you know, six years in the league, Right, the average time it took those other players I mentioned to win a cup was seven and a half years after they played their first game of the franchise to win a cup. There now again, that's averaged. Kane did it in three years, right? And 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 you know Stamkos did it in in twelve years. Ovechkin did it in thirteen. But the bottom line is, is those are two exciting players. And it's and and the NHL PR put out a tweet that said 
how do you stop these guys? And I just, I didn't, I did not put this out there publicly uh, via Twitter, but I, I'll put it out there on this podcast. Uh, I'll tell you how you stop them. You just wait for the regular season to end. Because if that's all they got, they're not playing in the playoffs. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, Connor McDavid leads the league in scoring with 24 points, and Drysaddle's right behind him with 22. I find it interesting that Drysaddle's plus 12 and McDavid's only plus one. Uh, you know, 14 and McDavid's 24 points is coming even strength, and he's only plus one. Teams are scoring when he's on the ice as well. Right. And that's a big reason why they're only at 500. Well, this goes back to a conversation we had several weeks ago when I was asking you guys, because I every one of these lists that we were seeing before the season, everybody had McDavid number one, McKinnon number two. I, and that's why I said at that point in time, I'm not, you know, I, I having never played the game, is there something that I'm missing with McKinnon? Because I think McKinnon is unquestionably a better player than McDavid, and it came to his all-around game. I, I will say this much, McDavid is still the best watch in this game. I mean, that goal, I mean, I did, I, I, I watched, I literally replayed the goal four times watching the game. When he basically picks up the puck behind the net, skates all the way down to the other end, beating at one point in time all five players on the opposition to score a goal, literally, it's, it's like a kickoff return. End zone to end zone. I mean, it's, it's some of the plays that this guy makes, it's just phenomenal. But then you'll see uh, Edmonton give up three goals. He's on the ice for two of them, and twice he's just like dangling around in the defensive zone with no apparent desire to get in the middle of the play. That's I'm right. a huge, huge McDavid guy from the standpoint of pure watch. Phenomenal pure watch. I will take McKinnon any day of the week. Well, I, I wish we would have taken McKinnon this weekend because the way the Blues have played against Arizona twice this week, they're supposed to play a McKinnon-less Colorado team this weekend, and now they have to play a team that's pretty much manhandled them, even though they, the Blues won one, pretty much manhandled them the first half of both games. And now they got to play him twice more. I, honestly, I would have rather had Colorado without McKinnon than Arizona these next two games. Yeah, but I agree with you, but that's that's the COVID thing. The, the lucky part for the Blues in this scenario is that at least, because Arizona was supposed to play Minnesota while Colorado came here, and then Arizona was supposed to go, go to Colorado. What this did is this allows the Blues to still play. They lose a back-to-back, so they play Saturday and on Monday, rather having to play Colorado Saturday, Sunday, and it actually takes an Arizona series off the books in late March. So wh- whether it was Armstrong's idea or whomever's idea to say, why don't we just do this, and that way we don't have to scrunch a schedule later for both these two teams, was an absolute brilliant move. All right, let me let me throw this to around our NHL hat trick here. The top four teams in the East Division, Boston, 7-1-2 and two after 10 games, pretty much just like the Blues. Philadelphia, 7-2-2, two and two. then Washington, and then Pittsburgh. Outside of the New York Islanders right now being dead last in that division, there's really no surprise in your guys' minds with those top four in that division, is there? No, and I, and I, and I think there's a distinct separation. I think in the end, by, by the end of the season, the Islanders will be in the playoffs. I still believe the Islanders are a good hockey team. They're just seemingly disheveled at this point. Well, they better figure it I, out because here's the problem, Oh, yeah, John. no question. You, you can't, like, you're the New York Islanders right now, okay? And every other game in your division every single night, there's one team ahead of you getting two points. So the, yeah. the, that that is what creates the real chance. Now, the flip side is somebody's not. So there's a way to gain on somebody every night, but at the same time, it's hard to catch somebody every night, too. Yeah, but I... I there, based on what I have seen up to this point in the season, I think that there is a clear separation with that top four. Philly and Boston, dude. Philly and Boston are really, really good hockey teams. Washington, eh, I still have my questions. Uh, Pittsburgh, again, a team that just doesn't seem to really put it all together on a regular basis. Some great individual parts, how those parts fit collectively in the end. I, I'm, I'm still somewhat ambivalent. But I, I will tell you this much. I will be absolutely shocked. Absolutely shocked if Philly or Boston, one of those two teams, isn't in the Stanley Cup final. Absolutely shocked. 
Well, Boston's been doing it year after year after year. I mean, their, their, their overall team ranking in the National Hockey League, I believe, has been in the top two each of the last three seasons, and and certainly it is right now. Uh, they're they're the more exciting team to watch than Philadelphia. I like Philadelphia. They're a heavy team. Speaking of heavy teams, but but Boston is a much more exciting team to watch uh, night in night out. When when you look at their overall performance, they're they're they smother teams. They've only allowed twenty three goals in ten games. I mean, they, they they just smother you, and they they just never let up. It's like oh. a wrestling match to them. You know, when, when one wrestler's on top of the other guy the entire match, that's what that's what playing the team's like. Well, and that's so a Marshawn, team that watched. Marsh- Go ahead, John. Marshawn, obviously, uh, is a household name among hockey fans, uh, and in large part to his antics. But boys, I'm telling you right now, I thought I, I thought he was before the season. I still think he. I still think Pasternak's a top five player. Oh, Pasternak yes. is just an incredible talent. Just an incredible, incredible talent. Well, and they were winning without him, and then they went back. The other thing that has not this is always that reminder. So as a fan, when you have an opinion on what a team is doing, and by all means, have as many opinions as you want, right? But on the outside, we're sitting there, and they're telling, look, we might have to limit your time to Zidane Chara. Big Z says, I, I don't really want to do that. And Z signs with the Washington Capitals. And then as a free agent, they had some offers. They were trying to sign Krug. Nothing quite mailed right. Krug ends up signing with the Blues. They brought some young defensemen in there, and all of a sudden, this is a—I mean, this is a Boston Bruins team that's won a couple games in a row again. They've got a goal differential of plus eleven. They're four and zero on home ice. They're playing eight hundred hockey through ten games, and they've been very sound defensively. Now they're going to need Tuka Rask to stay big because you know I'm not a huge believer in in Halak long term there, but um, but but that is amazing. Well, last one I want to get to before the the end of the podcast here, guys. A lot of people were up in arms with the St. Louis Blues going to the West Division, right? And I get it. A lot of it was more was just fan angst over start times. But one of the things, and we hit on this on an early episode of of, of Bourbon Biscuits and Barn Burners, is that Central Division, the way this is shaken up, could be one wicked dogfight. And all it was going to take was a team like the Chicago Blackhawks to just kind of potentially play above their level or somebody like that. And you look at their, where they sit right now. Now, they because of cancellations of games for Nashville and Carolina and Florida, they're all over the place. So the standings, as John said, don't, don't tell a whole story here, right? So the Columbus Blue Jackets, despite the fact that they sit first overall, tied with Tampa, they, they've played 12 games, but Tampa's played four fewer. fewer. Florida's played five fewer. Carolina, four fewer. Dallas, four fewer, right? So Columbus could just wake up and find themselves, hey, this is pretty good. We're atop the division. Bam. No, you're not. You're out of a playoff spot. But the Nashville Predators, going through a bit of an identity crisis again, they're just at 500 after 10 games. And I'm not sure how you see the Nashville Predators making the playoffs in a team that has Florida playing the way they've played, that has Carolina playing the way they've played, that has a Columbus Blue Jackets team in it, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Dallas Stars. I mean, this, from a Nashville Predators standpoint, and it is really weird, isn't it, to see a score and realize that we don't see these guys this year because that's a score that you used to have to watch and it mattered big time. I mean, this... I, I think the Nashville Predators could be in some real, real trouble in, in that division, but it's not just them. I mean, that one of those other teams. There's going to be a really two two teams that had full expectations of making the playoffs that are going to miss the playoffs in that Central Division. And Nashville won the game last night in Florida, who still hasn't lost in regulation. By the way, they win the game last night by scoring two goals in the last two minutes and sixteen seconds of the game because they cut the lead to one and. Florida, I believe, challenged the goal and lost, which gave Nashville another power play, and they scored on that to tie it, and then they win it in overtime. It's, it's kind of a crazy, hectic game like that. You know, we've seen it before that can, you know, one game like that can change the entire uh, emotional selectiveness of a team and, 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 and catapult. I mean, that was amazing what they did last night. And Florida's one of those teams when you just look at the, uh, when, you, when you look at the record and you look in the standing, and you're right, they haven't lost a game in regulation, and you know, I mean, ultimately, when you have a when you have a goose egg in the loss column, that means you're doing something right. But I don't think that they've played a team over 500 yet. I think they they played Nashville. They played a couple games against Detroit, um, a couple games against the Blackhawks. 
I, I don't think they played anybody up to this point. Yeah, but this is and this is the great part about the shortened season the way it is right now. All right? Like they've got Nashville again uh tonight and then they're going to play Detroit Sunday and Tuesday. Then they're going to get into a tough stretch where they play Tampa Bay Lightning three times in a row, followed by a series with the Carolina Hurricanes. But a team like that that gets off to some positive reinforcement and a positive start, albeit maybe because they've had a favorable schedule, can get a level of confidence that makes them a different team to play against against some of those other top teams. And you know they're extremely well coached, so there's no doubt about that one. But that's what happens in this sort of season. You get off to a good start and you get a team with a belief system, it can totally change a division up in this type of situation. I mean, that's what we should do. Mike Kitchen, right-hand man, the Florida Panthers coach, Joe Quinville. We need Mike to call Robert Thomas. They're both from the same area. They're both born in the <laughs> same municipality up in Ontario, I believe. We need Kitch to give a few words of advice to Robert Thomas. What we maybe, maybe John Hadley just needs to tear up the Nashville Predators because I don't think the Chicago Blackhawks have lost a game since he called them the worst team in the history of hockey two shows ago. Maybe they lost one since then. But quick, who's their goalie? Anybody ever heard of him? Anybody can beat anybody in this league. No, no. Don't start with that, Ron Perron. No, no, no. (laughs) Don't start with that. It's a 52-game season. Get back to me when the Blackhawks are drafted number one. Uh, (laughs) Fellas, it's an awesome week. Yeah, go ahead. I want to touch on one thing. I I think it's such such a tremendous honor for Doug Armstrong to be named the uh, general manager for Team Canada for the upcoming Olympics, if the NHL lets the players play, which they did in the 18, as we all know. But it, it's fascinating to think about the dynamics of Doug Armstrong controlling the roster of that team. And you look at the St. Louis Blues, who have 14 Canadians on the roster, and what it would do for their mentality and their psyche if Armstrong were to name them for the Olympic team. Mr. Pareko, Bennington, and O'Reilly at the top of the list, and dare I say, Kyrou Short, Shannon Hoffman uh, in that mix as well. I mean, you could see a very heavily St. Louis Blues rostered team on that Olympic team. What about with, the coach? You know, who, well, and the coach as well. And the well, coach as well. Yeah, I, that was the last one I was going to kick on. Well, the, the, the flip side to that is it could be really interesting if you only names like one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. Now, John, that's a fascinating thing because you go back a few years ago. Uh, I forget which Olympics it was, but the Blues ended. I mean, Sabotka was still with the team. All right. So uh, the Blues ended up with 10 Olympians yep. heading over to Europe. 10 of them. Now, one of them didn't play because of an injury. But I can tell you without a shred of doubt that those guys coming back, it impacted the rest of the season for the St. Louis Blues in a negative way. I believe so. Because a little bit worn out, a little more nicked up, um, and and it's something that the National Hockey League has seen for the most part uh, with teams that send a lot of players there. It was something that uh, the energy level just the rest of the way wasn't there for the St. Louis Blues. Uh, There's there's no doubt in, in the mind that, you know, look, at the same time, I think Doug Armstrong, if it's the right move, he's going to bring as many of his players as he could, if it makes sense for the team. But having said that, I don't think he's also going to hesitate if one guy's bubble and it just happens to miss. It happens to miss because he could justify it because you've got a you've got a bigger thing at stake at the end of that year. You know, but, you, but it is a great honor. It is a great honor for Doug Armstrong. That that's a big deal. You picked up on exactly what I was thinking. So, in all seriousness. It, it 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 is. I mean, that's and, and curves. You're talking about the physical aspect. I guarantee you, for players that are playing on a competitive team, which obviously Canada would be, you're also talking about the mental aspect. Oh yeah. You know the, the you know the pressure and the time put into representing your country, especially with the pressure that the Canadian team will have from the first time they drop a puck. You know, it's it's. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, and the big the big one I'll be looking at is the goaltender. You know, does he take Jordan Biddington with him? Terry Price obviously helped Canada win the gold the last time the, the NHL players were in the Olympics back in forth. Does he take an older Sidney Cross here? Does he take a younger guy? You know, it's it's, it's kind of it's fun to see the NHL back in the Olympics if it is indeed going to go that way. And 
it'll be a fun topic for us to talk about as we move along as well. Yeah, and especially, too, because the, the young players from a United States standpoint are just going to be spectacular to watch. I mean, it, and, and frankly, even, shoot, even even countries like Switzerland, I mean, they've got a couple players now in the National Hockey League. Like, it, it is going to be good. We'll, we'll make that a topic for a future cast as well, boys. But, uh, hey, thank you very much uh, for making it a part of your week here, guys. Uh, have a great week, and uh, we'll see how the Blues do and touch base again next week. You got it. Don't forget Corey Hart when it comes to the Canadian team. There's some pretty good Canadian goalies, boys. How are you? No, not, not Cardi. Go, go, Carter. Go Blue, Carter. Those, Carter Hart, not Corey Hart. Hart. Yeah, Car- Corey, Corey was a singer that is going to just age him. He wore his sunglasses at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's Tim Woodburn. That's John Hadley. I'm Chris Kerber. It's this week's edition of... Bourbon, biscuits, and barn burners. Thanks for checking it out. You can download it on any single one of the podcast platforms. You can listen live on the web as well. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll bring you more next week. Have a great week, everybody. All right, guys, spectacular. Good stuff. What? That's it. Like, like.